0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you guys. As you know, we are a few weeks into our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul had uh, started a number of churches in Galatia on one of his missionary journeys, and his habit was to continue to disciple and encourage them from afar by writing to them. Now, if you've read uh, Paul's letters, you know he usually begins them with a paragraph of encouragement, saying things like, I give thanks to God for you. I'm really encouraged by your faith. But his letter to the Galatians is very different. I don't know if you guys have ever read Harry Potter or seen the movies, but there's this type of letter that kids at Hogwarts never wanted to get from their parents. It's called a howler. The owl drops a red envelope onto your plate, and when you open it, it howls its message of displeasure at you. Paul's letter to the Galatians is a kind of howler. It's arguably one of his most, his most fiery letters, and scholars have noted that the original Greek, specifically in our passage, is shaky. It's shaky due to deep emotion and a sense of urgency. Now, Paul was writing... Because he heard what was going on in the church, that believers have had their heads turned by false teachers who have come and preached what Paul calls a false gospel. And what they were teaching was in order to be accepted by God, you, need, you needed Jesus plus something else. And specifically, they preached that they needed Jesus plus circumcision, which was required by the Mosaic law. And the reason that Paul writes with such passion is because he is absolutely convinced that what is at stake is freedom, our freedom to really know God, our freedom to call God our Father without barrier or hesitation. So in our passage this morning, Paul tells the Galatians a story about a time in the past When he and the apostolic leaders of the church in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John met together and agreed that the gospel is Jesus and nothing else. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read together Galatians chapter two, verses one to 10. It's also printed in your order of worship. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. "'Taking Titus along with me. "'I went up because of a revelation set before, me, set before them "'through privately before those who seemed influential. "'The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles "'in order to make sure I was not running "'or had run in vain. "'But even Titus, who was with me, "'was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. "'Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we indeed thank you for your word, that it is a light unto our path. Father, your word reminds us who we are. It reminds us What happened to us and what you did in response. Father, it reminds us of the good news of Jesus. And Father, I pray that each one of us, wherever we're at this morning, would be reminded of the good news, that Jesus is all that we need. May we see the freedom that he offers us this morning. And may we also, in contrast, see what it feels like, what it is like to be in slavery. And may we see that the gospel brings us out of slavery into this incredible freedom where we can see people and ourselves as you see us. Father, would you grant us that by your spirit this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, I learned something pretty exciting. Uh, If there is an error in how the electric company spells your name and it shows up in your credit report, like, say, David Salfetto instead of Salcido, uh, you cannot correct it online. You actually have to call the credit reporting agency and try to get it fixed. So last week, I got on the phone with an agent from Experian and he said that he needed to verify my identity by asking me some questions. So of course I agreed. And he starts out by asking me, which company did you open a student loan with in 2002? And I'm like, wow, uh, that was a really long time ago. Uh, it actually has been refinanced since then. I have no idea. And then he asks, okay, which of these have ever been your phone number? And he reads me four telephone numbers. One of them seemed kind of familiar because it had a California area code, but honestly, I wasn't sure. And I was like, sir, I don't even have my wife's phone number memorized. How can you expect me to know numbers I had years and years ago? And so I responded, you know, maybe maybe it's the second one. Well, it turns out that they want an answer that's more definitive than that. So understandably, by the end of a couple of questions, this guy was pretty sure I was not who I, says I, who I said I was. And of course, I was pretty frustrated because I had to get this done. Now, if you asked me, who is David Salcido? i tell you a lot of important things like about my wife and my kids and where I grew up and my hobbies and my job. But I wouldn't tell you about who my mortgage carrier was five years ago. But credit reporting agencies operate under under a very different definition in, of identity. And they have certain ideas that obviously are very different than mine about what counts in terms of establish, establishing one's identity. Now, our passage today, and really Galatians as a whole, is all about a crucial moment in the life of the early church. Not long after Jesus' death and resurrection when they were wrestling with identity and conflicting understandings about where their identity comes from. How do we gain an identity as someone who belongs to Jesus? How do other people recognize a follower of Jesus? Who is legitimately part of this family that God has called to know him and who's not? Now, our passage in chapter 2, I think, can be kind of challenging to understand because we're catching Paul in the middle of a story that he started back in chapter 1. Paul writes in verses 1 and 2, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them... Though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I pro- proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So the first thing that Paul is doing here is giving us a timeline of his ministry. He's telling us that he went through 14 years of missionary journeys, missionary travels, completely independent of the church leaders in Jerusalem. Now this, to our ears, might seem like an odd thing to include, but what Paul is doing here is remind the, reminding the church that he isn't a second-hand apostle. He did not get his gospel message from Peter and James and John and then muddle it when he preached all around the known world. Rather, Paul's version of the gospel is trustworthy because Paul received it straight from the lips of the visible risen Christ himself. And after Jesus' ascension, the risen Christ commissioned Paul to go with the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And so Paul's gospel message is authoritative. And this is an important thing for the Galatian church to remember because false teachers in Galatia were essentially saying, yes, Paul was right when he preached that trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection opens up the way for you to know God. But Paul was wrong not to tell you that to be a part of God's people, you also have to follow the Mosaic law to be circumcised, to keep the Jewish feasts and the purity laws. Their argument is essentially, if Jews under the Abrahamic covenant had to keep the law of Moses, then surely Christians believing in the Jewish Messiah would have to keep it as well. I mean, this is not an unusual argument. Matter of fact, Christianity had begun as a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem. So in the very early days of the church, all Christians kept Jewish law and all Christian men were circumcised because they were all Jews. But as Gentiles began to hear the message about Jesus and believe, a conflict of culture arose that threatened to splinter the church. Now, you and I admittedly don't spend a lot of time thinking about circumcision, so this conflict might, kind, might seem kind of silly to us. But the reason that it's not a big deal to us... <laughs> is because Paul won the argument. If Paul had lost the argument, circumcision would likely still be a really big deal. And that's because, prior to Jesus, circumcision was one of the core identity markers of people who belonged to God. God gave this physical sign to Abraham in Genesis 17 to show that God had chosen him and his descendants to set them apart from the other nations. For the Jews' whole history, circumcision had been the reminder that no matter how bad things got, God was for them. But Paul is saying, we have a new sign that God is for us. That sign put aside his glory and came and he lived among us and has nails placed in his hands and in his feet for us in our place. Every terrible thing that humanity has done, and every secret wrong that we have kept locked away in our hearts, he knows, and he paid the price. And because of that, we can come to God without shame, knowing that in Jesus we are wholly accepted and wholly loved. in Jesus, we find our place of belonging, our truest identity as God's children. And the good news is, it doesn't require that we do anything to earn it because we never could. Jesus himself has made a way, and His work is sufficient. We cannot add to it. Church, this was Paul's message that he preached. And so after arguing for his legitimacy, Paul continues by recounting for the Galatians a crucial moment in the history of the church when the purity of the gospel was at stake in the same way that it's at stake in Galatia. Paul says that he came up to Jerusalem a second time because of a revelation. Now, we're not told what the revelation was, but clearly God is behind the encounter that he's about to have. Nonetheless, Paul, the apostle, feels anxious as he enters into Jerusalem, that he has been running in vain. But he's not saying that he's afraid because he got the gospel wrong. He got the gospel directly from Jesus. But his fear is that the church leaders in Jerusalem will give in to the cultural pressures around them and place the heavy burden of the law on the Gentile believers who are coming to faith from cultures outside of their own. And this would either nullify their faith in Christ as God's perfect provision for their salvation or... It would cause the church of Jesus to split in two. For Paul, and really for us, the stakes couldn't be higher. So Paul does something really strategic. I think something brilliant when he goes to Jerusalem. He says, I brought Titus along with me. Now, Titus was one of Paul's non-Jewish co-workers. He was a believer. He was a pastor and a significant leader amongst non-Jewish Christians. Paul later writes to him and calls him my legitimate son in the faith. And Paul brings this mature Christian along with him, through whom God is doing extraordinary things, as a test case. Because you and I know it's one thing to discuss abstract theological issues. And it's quite another to see how they apply to real people with real consequences. Now, I imagine Paul sitting down with Titus and being like, dude, you know I love you, right? In Jerusalem, they think that I'm preaching a false gospel. So I need you to travel up to Jerusalem with me and show them that you're not circumcised and that you are the real deal as a believer. Sound okay? And Titus agrees. He comes to Jerusalem where he's likely to get the side eye and look down on as a second-class believer. But Titus puts himself out there Because Titus has been transformed by this gospel. He believes it to be true. And he trusts that Jesus will use him to work good for the church. So Paul and Titus and Barnabas have what's supposed to be this intimate meeting with Peter, James, and John. And Paul looks straight at these pillars of the church. And he says, look at Titus. Titus has trusted in Christ. He's rested in God's work. Is Jesus enough or are you ready to tell him that he needs something else in order to be accepted by God? And Paul says in verses 4 and 5, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So despite the fact that the circumcision fraction crashed Paul's meeting in order to push their agenda, Paul tells, that, that, that tells us that Peter, James, and John affirmed the gospel that Paul preached. They agreed, yes, Paul. We are all on the same page. There is one gospel. And it's that salvation comes through Jesus with no add-ons. Acts 15 actually tells us what Peter said to the Jerusalem leaders to settle the matter. And honestly, I think it's beautiful. Peter stands up and he says, Brothers, listen to me. God, who knows the heart, gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit just as he did us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And what the church was affirming that day is that Jesus is the power of God to redeem and to make new all peoples, all cultures, in all ages. And church, don't miss the gravitas of this. This is revolutionary. It means that God's plan for salvation was way, way bigger than anyone dared to dream before Jesus came. God doesn't just redeem us to make us all look the same way or requiring that we all worship in the same way. He redeems us by giving us all his spirit So that his love works itself out for the good and the renewal of the particular cultures that we come from. And our particular communities and our particular families. What was true for the Galatians is certainly true for us today. Jesus invites us into God's family and his invitation is enough to give us an identity forever as God's children. This is to be our truest identity, the one that can never be stolen because it rests on Jesus and not on us. The believer who walks with Jesus their whole life is not more beloved than the thief who was dying on the cross next to Jesus and asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his glory. Because as Paul says, God does not show Partiality. Jesus is enough for you. Now what this means for us is that we cannot, we cannot let anything define us as followers of Jesus apart from our identity in Jesus. Not our politics, not the way that we speak or dress, not the job that we do, not the way that we spend our time, not the way that we spend our money. Now listen, I'm not saying that these things are not important. That there's not a place for conversation about how we ought to do these things according to the pattern of love that Jesus has set before us. There absolutely is. This is why we have classes that talk about this. But those things are never, ever to be the primary thing. And if we make them the primary thing, we are believing and trusting a false gospel. Because our deepest identity is found in God's approval and our ability to call him Father, which has been secured forever by Jesus' work on our behalf. So what does this mean for us? I'd like us just briefly to consider two questions this morning. The first is this. When you and I... Look closely at our lives. What are the things that we think make us more pleasing and acceptable to God? Do we think that serving in important ways or being a good parent or having all of the right theological views increases God's pleasure on us? If so, Paul says we're allowing ourselves to be enslaved. We've been held captive by a sense of performance and an obligation that depends on our ability to get it right. And this slavery also creates this short-sightedness and an inward turning that shuts us off from the joy that Jesus is really offering us this morning. I want you to imagine two homes, two very different homes, A home in which you're always looking over your back. Where your security comes from your living very carefully. Where it's prudent to hoard and compare yourself to your neighbor. And the second home. A home where you have the whole expanse of God's glorious world world right at your doorstep to revel in, to create beauty, and have generous relationships of both giving and receiving. Church, Jesus is offering us the better home with him. His love for us and the presence of his spirit with us is our assurance that God is for us. And that gives us the freedom to grow in our identity as his children Children who grow and love and play and give and forgive and invite others around us to join us in experiencing the kindness of our Father. The second question is this. How do we, like the false teachers, put a yoke on others and make it more difficult to experience belonging in the family of God? Are there ways in which we expect other believers to look like us? How do we identify people as insiders in ways that actually serve to exclude? The gospel of Jesus calls us, not only as a church but as individuals, to spend time thinking about how we enable barriers to exist in the church around race and education and social economic status and non-essential issues of conscience. We are to look for those barriers in our worship together, in our small groups, in our friend groups, and in the areas in which we serve. And when, not if, and when we find them, we are called to name them to point them out, to repent, and invite Jesus to change us. Because when we look at Paul and his the expanse of his ministry, this is exactly what he did. He bent over backwards to remo- remove barriers to people hearing the message that Jesus has paved the way for them to know God. And in our passage, the bar- the barrier was the burden of the law. But elsewhere in his letters, we know that Paul actually told his friend Timothy to be circumcised because Timothy was pastoring a church of Jewish believers and he could serve them way better if he was integrated into their culture. Because as Paul says later in Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. And so church, let us rest in the freedom that we have in Jesus so he might grow us, he might grow in us by faith, hearts that love God and love neighbor as he has loved us. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the freedom thank you for people like the apostle paul who fought not only for the, the the church in galatia and their freedom he fought for our freedom our freedom to know you without barriers without hesitation our freedom to love father we pray this morning that we would be able to perceive that good news that jesus is enough He is enough for us. And Father, may we take that freedom into our workplace. May we take that freedom into our homes, into our families. And may we live out that freedom. Thus pointing people to your freedom and your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.